our brains are really, really predisposed towards belief in God. We've got several sets of biases and, and inclinations that lead us to a belief in something that looks very much like a theistic God. So it's not some um, mind virus as it's sometimes characterized by skeptics. But instead, like maybe the most natural human thing you can do is believe in God. It's very innate. That's Mike McCarg, also known as Science Mike. Today on the Innovations Podcast, I'll be talking with Mike about his ideas, about science, about communicating ideas about God, and about his new book, Finding God in the Waves. I'm Jason Weedle. This is the Innovations Podcast on the Media Scorch Podcast Network. I'm a college dropout, non-ordained nerd who talks to people about science and God. Uh, I do that through a couple of podcasts. One's called Ask Science Mike, which is a weekly question and answer program. I also co-host a show called The Liturgist Podcast with a guy named Michael Gunger, who's a musician. And I'm uh, an author. My first book just came out uh, recently. It's called Finding God in the Waves. And the core of all those projects is helping people make peace uh, with their understanding of God and what they know about science. For many people, the worlds of science and religion seem very far apart, if not at odds. We don't always know how to bring together our ideas about science and our ideas about God. For Mike, that is the work that drives him, helping people to understand God and also to understand the world and how God is displayed in the, the universe that we see around us. A lot of his unique perspective comes from his unique life story, both growing up in a very conservative Christian environment, becoming an atheist for a period of time, having a unexplainable experience with God, and then coming to a rather non-traditional understanding of God in the universe. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, loved it. Uh, as an adult, became an atheist because of a family crisis and was an atheist for a couple of years. And then I had a mystical experience where I felt like I directly encountered God, which was very puzzling for someone who does not believe in God. So in response to this great miracle, I got a CAT scan thinking maybe I had a brain tumor. And uh, when I found no tumor, I went searching for the origin of this experience. Originally, I had kind of looked into theology and scripture. And when those things left me feeling more skeptical than not, I turned instead to cosmology, particle physics, and neuroscience to figure out, you know, who or what is God and, and how do we relate to it. So part of the book is that story kind of interspersed with thoughts about science, and then part of the book is kind of sort of where you've arrived at a lot of a lot of the issues of faith. And I didn't even say where I'm arriving. I've, yeah. I've tried to avoid presenting a static picture anywhere in the book. Sure, yeah. 
I thought it was really interesting as I was as I was going through it. Um, you know, I was kind of thinking back to these certain years and what was going on both in my life and what I kind of saw going on in the church. And, and a lot of it's not that long ago. Sometimes when we hear people's stories, it's, you know, we're looking back 20 years or 30 years, and, and your story isn't that long ago. Um, and so, you know, I, I, the, some of it kind of reflects some of the things that I was going through at the same time and some of the people who were affecting me. I mean, uh, both Donald Miller and, and Rob Bell have had a pretty big impact on my system of belief and ideas and kind of coming from a more fundamentalist. Um, I don't usually describe my background as fundamentalist, but I, a lot of people would. <laughs> right. Um, and then emerging into something uh, less rigid. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people were going through some of that at the same time. I'm excited about the book. I uh, have been kind of following what you do for, for a little while, and sometimes it's a little difficult to share what you're doing and talking about with people who aren't really into podcasts. So the book makes that a little easier. Um, who's, who's the book for? Two, two groups, really. Um... And I, I thought the main audience for the book would be uh, people who really long for God but just can't do it. They just can't believe because of skepticism. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that's a lot of people that read the book are in that camp, but they're they're not the primary person who's bought the book. And the pri- the the larger group is Christians and atheists who want to understand each other better and want to have better language for conversation. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, and so it's kind of become a, 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 a way for people to understand faith transitions, changing faith, this, this movement away from organized religion in the United States. Um, and they're pretty close. You know, there's probably 55, 45 uh, but those are the people who are buying the book today. Hmm. And um, the reason I kind of presented the book initially in a memoir style is not because I think my story is amazing or I think I warrant that much attention. But instead, I've, I keep hearing this idea from people I talk to all the time, and that's that the the personal is the universal. So the more honest I was about my own experiences and the more I spoke only from a completely personal perspective, the more that information would resonate with other people. Hmm. And a lot of people who read the book read it because they went through a similar faith transition that maybe hasn't even led to the degree of resolve that mine has. Um, you know, my, my editor who's who's brilliant said that my book is for the most skeptical of skeptics because they've read all the, the Christian books in the bookstore and they've read all the philosophy books and they've read all the science books and they got done and they said, I'm just not sure I buy any of it. (laughs) Mm. And, um, so they come to, to my book and I say, yeah, I'm not sure I buy any of it either. And so what I lack in 
definitive answers um, for my audience, I make up for with an honesty and a willingness to admit the limitations on human knowledge and then say, okay, so if, if, if our perspectives are so limited, what now? What, what are some options? And um, so I take people through you know, ways to relate to the Christian faith without the kind of epistemological or philosophical grounding that the Christian faith usually expects, at least in this era. Obviously, more ancient expressions of Christianity were much more comfortable with mystery. Some of the uh, the ways that you explain that are, are the axioms that you have throughout the book and then also at the end. And um, I, I have heard those as you, you've brought them up on podcasts and always wished I had them. I could write it down really fast or something like that. <laughs> um, can you explain a little bit of, of what that is um, just in a general sense as an axiom and then maybe tell us a little bit about one or two of those? Sure. Your the, specific... The... Yeah. The whole idea about these axioms, first of all, to be clear, they are philosophical axioms, not logical axioms. Uh, for the really nerdy in the crowd, that is an important distinction. Um, but it's basically, <laughs> I'm shocked at how popular those things are. Uh, they were never designed for public consumption. When I started experiencing God again, I just was incredibly skeptical of the whole affair. And when I would try to pray to this God I was just starting to encounter, I would feel very self-conscious. I would feel embarrassed or ashamed um, because it felt like felt like you know being 35 years old and going to the mall to see Santa Claus. Hmm. It just felt ridiculous. And as I learned more about the brain, I understood that's because one part of my brain wants to take things apart and that human experiences with God don't really happen very much in that part of the brain. They happen in a different part of the brain or they incorporate different parts of the brain that are more associated with feeling and experiences. So I needed some way to get the, 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 the part of my brain that take things apart to just be quiet for a few minutes, just get out of the way. So I had to provide some rational scientific justification for what I meant by the word God or Jesus or prayer. And um, so I, I, I went on this mission to define those things scientifically. And I found pretty quickly that I couldn't get anywhere near Christian orthodoxy, but I could find scientific grounding for a word like God, for example. So when we theologically speak of God, we, we're talking about where do we come from and why do we keep existing? Those are pretty common attributes ascribed to God across all faith traditions. Mm. And the God you find there would uh, look like physics. Um, and if you look in physics, there are some, some deeply mysterious, divine-like concepts. But they're very pantheistic. They're not personal. They're not relatable. Uh, so then I said, well, how do we experience God? And that's what led me to neuroscience. And so I would write out these axioms as these at least even if ideas, meaning here's the like minimum, you know, sure. The, the very least you can say about God and still be talking about God, but that is scientifically grounded. 
and then the implications of that idea. So I don't remember them exactly because I, I don't personally use them very much anymore. But for a while, there were these mantras in my faith. And so God was, God is at least the set of forces that created and sustained the universe is experienced via a psychosocial model rooted in human brains. And that even if that's all God is, it can lead us to lead lives of you know, compassion and empathy and grace. Faith is at least a way to contextualize the human need for spirituality and to find meaning in the face of mortality. Even if this is all faith is, spiritual practices can be beneficial to human cognition, emotions, and culture. Prayer is at least a form of meditation that encourages the development of healthy brain tissue that reduces stress and that can connect us to God. Even if that is a comprehensive definition of prayer, the health and psychological benefits of prayer justify that discipline. The church is at least the global community of people who choose to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. Even if that is all the church is, the church is still the largest body of spiritual scholarship, community, and faith practice in the world. And this practice can improve people's lives in real, measurable ways. Salvation is at least the means by which humanity overcomes sin to produce human flourishing. Even if this is all salvation is, spiritual and religious actions and belief that promote it are good for humankind. I shared them once at a party to someone who had lost their faith too, and he found them like really encouraging and wrote a blog post about them. And after that, these axioms became, they, they like made me science Mike. Hmm. Uh, people looking for these axioms and kind of became the grounding of all my work. So that's why they're in, the first draft of the book didn't have the axioms. I thought they were too nerdy. And then my publisher was like, we really need the axioms in there. <laughs> and then we also included the most up-to-date um, version of them in the back of the book on a single page for reference. I, it seems to me that it's a, it's a way for us, t in, a, in a modern way of thinking, to be able to grab hold of these ideas about God and faith. Um, in ways that they're not, the, those ideas are not usually explained. Um, one of those things that you talked about, <clears throat> the the reason that you approached it like that is looking at the science of each of what what's the science of God or the science of of belief. Can you say a little bit about what what is the science of belief or the science of um? believing or talking to God? What does that do to our brains? Oh, wow. Um, I'll pick a couple of things. This is a, uh, obviously a really broad idea. I mean, a couple of things that really jumped out to me. One is that our brains are really, really predisposed towards belief in God. We've got several sets of biases and, and inclinations that lead us to a belief in something that looks very much like a theistic God. So it's not some um, mind virus as it's sometimes characterized by skeptics. But instead, like maybe the most natural human thing you can do is believe in God. <laughs> mm. 
Um, it's just it's it's very innate to how we function. So and why why is that? We've got a, a set of of it's three things. One, um, as we form our identity, when we're born, we don't have an identity separate from our mothers. We're not aware that mom's a separate person or organism. As we learn that she is, uh, we tend to believe that she's all powerful and all knowing. <laughs> and then when we figure out mom's not all knowing, uh, you know, in our late toddler stage, then we tend to project that onto an unseen force, that there is an all knowing uh, unseen force in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, second, we have a bias to accept purpose based explanations over more accurate explanations that don't include purpose. Even trained scientists have this bias. This was all discovered, by the way, via a large peer-reviewed study from Oxford. And uh, third, humans have a hard time believing that their consciousness doesn't continue after death. So even in secularized nations, where belief in God is relatively low, belief in the afterlife remains very common. Half or more of the population believes that their consciousness will continue after death. And Oxford, the study found that those are kind of the three constituent drives that work together to create very common theistic belief across the species. So I, I think the, the Christian apologist would say, oh, that's built into us by God. Is that legitimate? That predisposition to belief? That would be a a hard claim to justify with just that data. Um, what I'm careful to do in my work, and the reason I don't call myself a Christian apologist, is I never try to overstretch the science to have it say things that it doesn't actually say. Yeah. So you could you could say that's a valid hypothesis to explore from that data, but the data itself doesn't support that hypothesis as a fact claim. Hmm. <laughs> How's that for really, really putting too fine a point on? <laughs> so anyway, we were going to to what's happening in your brain. Uh, well, yeah. So then, then you discovered that um, when people believe in God, and you use brain imaging to see how, what their brain's doing when you ask them to think of God, you find that God is not very much associated with language at all. This is the reason people have a hard time articulating their ideas about God. It's not because they're unsophisticated. It's because their experiences and understanding of God are non-linguistic. They're, they're, they're very much more similar to feelings or experiences in the brain. And to try to turn these feelings and experiences into language, A, takes time, and B, modifies them. It's the same thing that happens if someone asks you why you love your spouse. You, you stop for a moment. It's such a strange question. And you're like, I should know this, right? And there's this moment of this almost panic or fear because you can't articulate why you love your spouse. But it's actually that you love your spouse so much that your brain doesn't spend time rationally analyzing that love or pinning language to it. That there's this, there's this unspeakable beauty to the love you have for your spouse. Yeah. And it's just like that with God in our brains. And when we have that kind of a belief in God and we nurture it through prayer or meditation, 
it really starts to transform our brains in some pretty profound ways. It improves memory and concentration and focus. It improves our compassion and empathy responses. It decreases our anger responses to given stimulus. And it, it, it really boosts overall brain health in a way that's similar to physical exercise or reading, two of the most beneficial things you can do for your brain. Uh, and so this is when I, I got into neuroscience was really the biggest kind of slam dunk I found in science that didn't justify belief in a theistic God necessarily, but absolutely justified Christian faith and practice pragmatically as something that's good for you and good for the species. Hmm. You talk a little bit uh, in the book about uh, certainty and a, a person's kind of desire and need for certainty um, and sometimes and the problems that that raises. Um, can you say a little bit about, about that? We've got a part of our brain whose job, one of its jobs, is to think about the future all the time. It makes us daydream. It's called the orbitofrontal cortex. And it likes to be right. We like our guesses to pay off because humans that are better at predicting the future have better survival chances. So we like to believe that our predictions about the future and our model about reality are very accurate. And we get stressed when they're not. And so one thing religion has traditionally done is in a very chaotic, confusing world, has given its adherents, religion's adherents, great confidence and great certainty that their worldview accurately describes the world. And there's lots of reinforcing processes that do this. There's, there's a lot of rewards emotionally and psychologically for that. Now, it comes with all kinds of downsides that can be twisted and turned into authoritarian religion. Uh, we can deny facts about the world too long to our own peril. Um, but ultimately, in the same way that belief in God is a very natural thing for human brains to do, an addiction to certainty is also a very natural brain behavior, but one that doesn't necessarily benefit us. Do you think that there is... Is there something in certain people and the way that we think that attracts us to religion or, or especially to very um, foundationalist kind of religions that's, that really say this is the reason for everything and you must be certain about it? Yes, yeah, that bias towards certainty. Absolutely. And people's experiences... Um, if they've had the rug pulled out from under them a few times, they may be reticent to buy into another absolutist belief system. Hmm. So that's kind of where you see that. But it, it you know, t typically people who've had um, fewer of those experiences are more inclined to the kinds of ideas that foundationalism embodies. I guess it it also makes me think of of just sometimes popular ideas that aren't necessarily true, but they do reflect some amount of truth that that religion sort of attracts simple people. <laughs> you know, it's, it's an easy answer for people who are in prison. It's an easy answer for uneducated people who are just going through hard things in life. And as 
societies become more sophisticated, then they leave religion behind. Do you think there's legitimacy to that? There's there's partial legitimacy. Um, but not, not entirely. Uh, yeah. That is one factor at play, but there are a lot of sophisticated people who believe. We also understand that 44% of people in America today will go through a faith transition at some point in their life. In other words, they'll have one belief about God and they'll move to another one. Uh, that's about the same percentage that atheists have. So atheists don't have any better retention rate than religious people. And what we're finding is children of atheists are some of the least likely people to be atheists later in life. Hmm. Um, and this we're, we're seeing this in Europe, that you have a lot of secular children who, as they come of age, are joining fundamentalist evangelical movements in, in Europe. Uh, because there's no perfect belief system for the human experience. So forget the fact claims, how accurately they describe reality for a second. We don't choose beliefs based on their factual accuracy. We choose them based on social identity and psychological need. That's why it's it's a really oversimplification just to say, you know, that that sophisticated people are atheists and unsophisticated people are religious. It's just not true. It is true that in certain life circumstances, discovering a new faith tradition can provide emotional benefits that you need. Um, but that doesn't correlate with sophistication. The, the movements, for example, with, with income and atheism are more about the amount of time you have as a person of privilege to ponder things not directly related to survival than to quote-unquote sophistication. Yeah. But even if children who have the same amount of time to ponder, now that they've taken atheism as an assumption, will discover instead the limitations of atheism as a belief system in terms of human emotional need. Coming to you from Dunwoody United Methodist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, it's Ask Science Mike Live! Earlier we mentioned Mike's weekly podcast, Ask Science Mike. Each week, Mike takes questions from regular people who submit their, their inquiries about science, about religion, about the intersection of those things. Sometimes they're, they're pretty tough, and uh, Mike's thoughts are sensitive, compassionate, and always insightful. We took a few minutes to have our own Ask Science Mike. Can we uh, play Ask Science Mike a little bit? Let's do it. We, uh, for those who are not familiar with your podcast, you take questions from uh, from people who submit questions just about a variety of things. And um, I think it's interesting that, and you've noted this, that it started out very scientific, but some of them almost go into the realm of advice lately. And uh, I guess that's just kind of the way it is when um, you're a trusted person. Well, now, now there's even more recently... It's moving away from advice towards like unanswered questions in the sciences and philosophy, <laughs> um, at which, you know, I'm just basically multiple times a week going, I have no idea and no one does either. Next question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we're coming up on Halloween. We're coming up on times where uh, people are kind of thinking about ghosts and spirits and um, 
makes me think about some of those things a little bit, and especially the superstitions that we sometimes have. Uh, and I guess my question there is, what is superstition? Why do we seem to be disposed to it? And is there any reality behind our superstitions? Superstition kind of lives at the intersection of two things. One, the affirmation search for certainty in the human experience. And two, the fact that human brains are incredibly adept at finding patterns in our sensory input. So good at it that we will see patterns where none exists. So to the part of your brain that's responsible for remembering faces, a face is not eye color or skin or anything like that. It's primarily the distance between the eyes, the symmetry of the eyes, the distance from the eyes to the nostrils, the distance of the nostrils from each other, the distance from the nostrils to the mouth, etc. Right? Hmm. So if you see uh, at night in a window patterns of darkness that have you know, six points that are darker than the others that would fit the algorithm for possibly a face, your brain goes, ooh, a ghost. Or there's a face there. And because that's scary and off-putting because the dark has always been pre-civilization, a time that humans were very vulnerable, you need some way to identify those false positives um, in a way that makes you feel like you still understand the world. And from that we get, I believe, ghosts and unseen things. Years ago, I was um, part of a ministry group that did some, some work with um, some Native American churches on reservations in the western part of the country. And uh, there's a lot of Christianity among Native Americans um, some of it is combined with some ideas from, from Native religion. Um, and one of the things that we saw happen as we were on, on one reservation in one community is we started hearing stories about somebody had, or a few people had seen an owl. And I guess it's fairly common among a lot of Native Americans, but particularly here, that owl sort of represents death, and three people will die if an owl is seen. And so we sort of took up the, you know, we could kind of brush that off and say, oh, that's ridiculous. But there was, we actually took it, as Christians, we took it with some seriousness and prayed about this issue. and. And, and because I think one person had recently died. Um, so would you say something like that belief is, is rooted in a human being's need to, to, to find patterns? Um, and is there anything else going on there? It, it's, I would say, with high confidence on how I understand the world that is related to pattern and culturalization and you'll find typically with superstitions like that they're defined loosely enough like so how long after the owl appears will the three right. deaths occur and how often do deaths occur in a given population mm -hmm. 
and you'll typically find that the, those deaths were just statistically normal uh, intervals that they weren't significant or correlated to the appearance of an owl. Also, how often do people see owls? Yeah, pretty often, especially you know people are out a lot at night, um, and so that becomes something that's very easy to reinforce. Oh, I saw an owl, and then over the next eight months, three people died. Well, people die a lot. That's that's a <laughs> So it's it's a it's a universal feature of human lives. Um, so no, I don't I don't tend to now I, I don't want to make light of cultural traditions like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just saying they don't they don't have a very strong empirical grounding. Right. You know we've we've talked a lot about kind of the the sciency things that you focus and talk about. Um, I think at the same time, though, you have a way of um, being very compassionate and um, sensitive to the needs of people outside of just explaining cold science. Um, Is there anything that you'd like to add along those lines to... I don't know, kind of help the person who hasn't listened to you to understand a little more of the perspective that you like to come from? I was really bullied as a kid. Really, really, really bullied. And so I know what it's like to be dismissed and minimized and mocked. I know what it's like to feel like you don't belong. And all of my work is simply born of a desire for other people to not feel that. That's it. That's the whole, the whole engine behind how I approach the world is uh, to not be a bully and to help other people not feel bullied no matter where they are or what they believe. Yeah, that's good. If uh, folks are interested in seeing more, hearing more, buying the book, where can they look? You can learn all about the book at findinggodinthewaves.com. And if you'd like to learn more be, about me and my work, just go to AskScienceMike.com. Click the tab that says Work, and it'll take you to everything I do. Well, thank you, Mike, for taking time to chat. And uh, really appreciate what you're doing and all of your work. And hope we can direct some folks towards you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Innovations Podcast, where we talk to people who are doing interesting things in the world of ministry and Christianity. Please check out the other Media Scorch podcasts. You can find them by looking up Media Scorch at iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Please also rate the show and uh, share it with some friends.